Back to Luke and to the 12th chapter of that gospel this morning. You uh, remember that uh, Jesus and his disciples are now surrounded by a crowd of thousands of people. So thick uh, are they that uh, they're actually tripping over each other, trampling each other. They've been uh, hearing Jesus teach his disciples how to undergo suffering and persecution for his sake. He's been uh, raising their eyes above themselves and above the circumstances that they will uh, soon face in the near future for their allegiance to Christ. He turns their sights heavenward to God, to the one who, unlike limited men who can merely kill the body, also can ascribe, uh, uh, I mean, send uh, someone to hell, to God who cares for each and every sparrow and certainly cares for his children, his very hairs he numbers, to God who will help them and put the words on their lips at just the right time when they need them, having been dragged before rulers and authorities because of their faith, to God whose reward uh, to those who confess Christ in this life will be to hear their names confessed before angels in the next. But there is someone in the crowd who is growing very weary of all of this heavenly talk. You can hear his heart percolating. What do I care about heaven and angels and God? And finally he bursts out, teacher, tell my brother to defy the inheritance with me. A chill falls across our Savior's heart at that moment as the two conflicting worldviews present there collide, a chill that can be heard even in Jesus' very curt reply. But after his, after his typical fa- uh, fashion, Jesus fully redeems this opportunity open to him by a comment uh, from someone else to turn that selfish earthbound demand into a heavenly lesson for that man, for the disciples, for the crowds, and for us. Let's pray. Make it so, our Father, we pray that your Spirit would impress upon us the the truth here that uh, was uttered from your Son's mouth that is as true today as ever it was, that our lives may be conformed uh, more and more to the image of your Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 12, we'll begin at verse 13 and read through verse 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, 
You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This week I've been immersed in the two so-called certainties of life, death and taxes. Both sermons today in the Lord's providence have death at the center. This morning's the death of a rich fool. This evening's the death of a choice saint. Death, the great leveler of men, the final arbiter of a person's life. Meantime, I've been working on my taxes, which is no small task. It's very taxing. Uh, Having waded into the small sea of tax forms, I I met Mr. Thomas at that moment. I'm sorry, I, I fell into temptation on the taxing thing. But having waded into a small sea of tax forms and rules and yards of adding machine tape, I found myself suddenly neck deep in the world of material possession of receipts and account balances and estimated payments and scratching for every dollar I could in legal exemptions and deductions. All the while... I've been feeling this tension within, uh, the nagging tug and pull of material possessions on the one hand and eternity on the other. My sermon studies have set my heart heavenward while navigating the checkbook and personal property tax receipts drew me with very strong cords into the temptation to measure my life in terms of financial numbers and possessions. And things. Maybe, hopefully, you know that tension and experience it yourselves. We're living, as the pop singer has it, in a material world, which means for us Christians that we must struggle every day not to be dominated by the material but to live by spiritual principle and reality by which we measure and weigh and hold material things. That's the struggle with which one man in this crowd had uh, no familiarity whatsoever. For him, the material was everything. I mean, absolutely everything. He hadn't heard a word that Jesus said. Not really. Not with his heart. His one concern, it might well be the sole reason why he is here today in this crowd, is utterly and completely material. His father has died, and now, as is often the case, the fight for the inheritance is on. Oh, there were rules that governed inheritances, of course. You can find those in your Bibles, and he could have too. But the rabbis of that day were often pulled into such cases to uh, render a judgment. It was because of Jesus' capacity as a rabbi, as a teacher, that the man appealed to him. Actually, it was more of a demand than an appeal. 
teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus has very little interest in the matter. He didn't come for the purpose of squabbling about stuff. He came to give men eternal life. And so coldly, in just about the coldest terms possible, it surprises us a little bit, actually, from Jesus' lips. Jesus replies, man, who made me judge over you? Who made me arbitrator over you? Jesus summarily dismisses him. And rightly so. Jesus has been at pains to teach them not to be anxious about their lives. Here comes this man demanding that Jesus make his life a little more comfortable. Jesus will not be so used, but he does take the opportunity to teach. He goes on in verse 15 with a warning. Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To whom is Jesus speaking? Well, no doubt he's speaking to that man. That would make perfect sense. He's the one who started all this by insisting that Jesus take his side in this little inheritance dispute of his. But could it be that the man's brother was standing there too? I think that entirely likely and possible. His brother was probably just as covetous as he was. His brother, probably the older brother, was holding the inheritance, maybe even legally for himself. So his covetousness takes a different form. He's holding the possessions and he's unwilling to share. So it could certainly be the case that Jesus was actually addressing the other brother, who's holding the goods. Covetousness, that is the passion for things and possessions and money, is not a sin unique only to those who have them uh, or, or don't have them. It also burns in the breast of those who do have them, who have hands and houses full of them. Be on your guard against all covetousness, Jesus says. Covetousness takes different forms for different people. But it's an equal opportunity, sin. It's known in the hearts of both the haves and the have-nots. It's also entirely possible that Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Now, they may not be as brazen about it as this young demanding man or as transparent, although they have been, as we know, in recent memory, But since, as McShane has it, the seed of every known sin lies in my heart, they needed to hear this message too. And then there were those thousands in the crowd. The fact is, this is a message for all of us, for every one of us. We are all tempted by the desire to have more, more things, to gain more stuff. And having gained it, to cling to it tightly and even to measure our lives according to it. This is as true for poor people as it is for rich people. How much is enough? You remember the famous rich man's reply? Just a little bit more. We've come to wink at this sin of covetousness and think very little of it. In some ways, it is 
this that drives our economy, greed. And so it is a sin most tolerated and even encouraged in America. But Jesus implies by the direness of his warning that it is a deadly sin when indulged. It is a twofold warning, in fact. Jesus says, take care. And then in case they miss that, be on your guard against all covetousness. There's something here that's to, to be taken very, very seriously. Something not to be taken lightly. Something is set you watching and guarding, being very vigilant, lest it take hold of you. And it does so often, this enemy of covetousness. In, it's very skilled at striking very quietly, very subtly. Oftentimes it insinuates itself into your heart through a a passing glance at the checkbook balance. How much do I have? If only I had just a little bit more. Or how can I hold on to what I have so that I can be confident about the future? Or why should I give any of this away? I earned every, every penny with my own sweat and blood. But covetousness doesn't really need to say any of those things, drawing even a sort of inner sense of peace or of importance from knowing how much I have in the bank or in these stocks or in my IRA. This, too, is a form of coveting. It's measuring your life, you see. It's measuring your life by the numbers, measuring your life by your possessions, when Jesus says one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not where your life is found. In your stuff, or in your money. Your true worth, your real value, your importance, your existence before God is not measured by Stuff and money. Don't be fooled. Don't be beguiled by these measurements by which the world determines a person's worth. When it comes to the ultimate questions of life and death and eternity, money and stuff just disappears, vaporizes from the scene. Death is a net in which rich and poor are alike caught up together naked. And to drive home the point, Jesus adds a parable. It's a story of a wealthy and successful farmer. He's obviously shrewd in agribusiness. He's experienced a bumper crop, maybe just the latest in a string of bumper crops, because he already has barns bursting at the seams with with crops and produce and his possessions. So he's got a dilemma. What do I do with this most recent harvest? He asks himself, and then he answers himself, no fear, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store my goods and my produce. A reasonable plan, very reasonable, isn't it? Now what else can he do? Is not a fix? All this extra food? What do you do with it? Got to store it somewhere, somewhere, you know. 
I guess he could have shared it with the poor. No. Uh, don't be silly. This is his. This is mine. I earned this. I planted it. I harvested it. Mine. Mine to take to my ease for myself, to line my own nest, which it turns out is exactly his plan. His soliloquy, that is his conversation with himself, goes on. Verse 19, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. A great plan, a fantastic plan. And why not? He's worked hard. It's his Why not enjoy it? And while we're at it, why not some wine, women, and song? And why not for years and years and years more? Ah, there's the rub. He may be able to put up enough goods for years and years, but he can't put up years and years. Verse 20, God says to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I think I may safely say, in a sense, that this fellow's problem, his fundamental fundamental failure, was one of knowledge. True wisdom, John Calvin wrote in the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, True and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. If Calvin was right, and I think he was, then this poor fellow in Jesus' parable was destitute of knowledge indeed, because he had neither. He neither knew himself nor God. I want better for you, dear flock, and I want better for myself. And more importantly, Jesus wants better for you and for me. He wants us to be truly wise. And if we will be wise and in wisdom thwart and slay this sin of covetousness in our hearts, we'll need to have knowledge of ourselves and and knowledge of God. First, you must know yourself. You must know yourself in ways that this man did not. Now, he may seem to have had pretty well uh, acquainted himself with himself, Uh, After all, his best friend, his uh, chief companion in conversation, was himself. Now, the only thing he loved more than talking to himself was listening to himself. He asked himself, what do I do with the extra produce? And then he answers himself. He slaps himself on the back and counsels himself, speaks to himself by name. Self, soul, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy's a regular one-man show. But as much as he talks to himself... He doesn't really know himself. If he did know himself, he'd realize, for one, how deceitful is his own heart. If you would be wise, my friends, if you would have true wisdom, you must know this about yourself. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart, as the prophet Jeremiah says, is deceitful above all things. In other words, your heart is a liar. And your heart will lie to you. It will always tell you just what you want to hear. That's why taking the counsel only of your own heart is never a wise thing to do. 
and will lead you into destructive paths because it's an entirely unreliable guide. You've got to know yourself well enough not to trust yourself. I know that I can always convince myself. If I carry on in a conversation with myself long enough, I can always convince myself of exactly what I want to believe. Beware your own heart. Another part of knowing yourself is knowing how frail you are and how fleeting is your life. Here's another way in which this rich fool really did not know himself at all. He failed to reckon with his own mortality. That he was going to die. And that death might just come very soon. And that death would make of him, as it does of every man, a poor man. No one has yet met death in a state of wealth. Or taken that wealth with them across that river. As the psalmist truthfully says, even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike perish and leave their wealth to others. I've seen lots and lots of funerals over these years. Going by on Route 54 from Owensboro out to the graveyards here. Lots of hearses. And I have yet to see a single one of them pulling a U-Haul trailer. Even if you can amass barns full of possessions over there, they will do you no good over there. All of your wealth goes to someone else. All of it. Well, at least I can enjoy it for now, right? Well, yes and no. You know full well from your own experience. Any one of you could tell me that there really is no really lasting enjoyment in things. They give temporary thrills. I will acknowledge that. I will admit it completely, but none of you can tell me truthfully that you have found real and lasting fulfillment in that car that you just had to have. Or in that house just a little bit bigger than your last one. Or in that toy. Children, who of you have gotten a Christmas present that has brought you joy for years and years and years? Filled your life with happiness and joy. Hmm? What's the last toy that you got that lasted like that? Not a one. They weren't designed to give that. Things aren't designed to give you that sort of fulfillment. And the fact is, you don't know how long you have to enjoy them if they could. Just as this fool in Jesus' parable was about to kick up his heels, sip some champagne, break out the caviar, his life was demanded from him. The Greek here speaks in terms of a loan. His loan was called. We have nothing that isn't on loan to us, even our own lives. And that loan will be called too. He had to give that back. He thought it was his to keep. You have nothing, my brothers and sisters, 
You have, you have nothing that is not on loan to you. That you will not have to give back sooner or later. Nothing that is absolutely yours. Even your lives are on loan from him. And that's why we sing sometimes as we present our tithes and offerings to the Lord. We sing, we give thee but thine own. In recognition of whose it is. All of it. The truly wise man asks the Lord to help him to know himself and to know this about himself. Like the psalmist asked, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting they are. How fleeting I am. Speaking of the Lord, true wisdom will be ours not only when we know ourselves, how our hearts lie to us, how we are fleeting and frail, but also, second, we must know God. And that was this man's fundamental failure. He didn't know God. That's why he's rightly and accurately called by that name, fool, in Jesus' parable. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This man may not have said those words exactly, but he lived that way, as if there were no God. He gave no consideration to God. God's will played nary one little bit part in his considerations. He decided without consulting God. He took action without consideration to God. Faced with the dilemma of storing his surplus, he asks, What shall I have do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? That would have been a great prayer had it been prayed to the right person. But he prayed it to himself. He's an effective atheist is what he is. He didn't thank God for his surplus. He didn't seek God for his direction. He didn't offer God any portion of his proceeds. He gave God no thought, his sovereignty over his life, not a thought, nor prepared to meet him in his death. Phil Riken points out that the man thought he had a storage problem. But as a matter of fact, what he had was a spiritual problem. Joel Green, in his commentary, says that the principal deficiency of the wealthy farmer is his failure to account for God in his plans. My friends, be wise. Give thought to God. Thank him for every blessing. Pray to him about every problem. Obey him in every action. Offer him the best of what he has loaned to you. Trust your present to him. Trust your future to him. Prepare to meet him at the judgment day and then meet him every day in his word and in prayer. Listen to his voice and the voice of godly counselors who are themselves wise because they know him. Then you will be wise and not a fool. Then you will know how to live in a material world, knowing how to hold only loosely to possessions and money while clinging, oh, so tightly to him. A man's life truly is not found 
in his possessions, not in barns and barns and barns full of possessions and money to boot. It is found, it is only found in God. Jesus says, I am the life. And this is eternal life, he says in his prayer to the Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Apostle Paul agrees, to live is Christ. The fool thought he would find rest in his possessions. He never did. Jesus says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Do it and you ever will. Amen.